Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come again asking that you would help us. The prayer before the sermon is very often almost the same thing, but it's because we stand in need of the same thing, that you would help us. And I pray that you would help me to preach your word faithfully and humbly and help us as your people to hear it, receive it, and be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come this evening to just three verses in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16, 17, and 18. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Let me remind you of where we are in this letter and situate these three verses. The letter thus far has been about godliness. In verses 3 through 11, we saw the power, the pattern, and the premise of godliness. And then verses 12 through 15, we were reminded of these qualities as Peter makes clear that his time is soon coming to an end and he wants as a final parting word to these believers to be reminded of what godliness looks like and to strive after it. As we'll see in the weeks ahead, behind the scenes in this call to godliness is the lurking influence of false teachers Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And what is the nature of the heresy from these false teachers? We don't know all of the details, but we can see clearly that one aspect of the false teaching is that these teachers were encouraging people or allowing the people to live a licentious life, especially in the area of sexual immorality. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Many will follow their sensuality. Go down to verse 10 in chapter 2. And especially those, warning against them, who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. Or again in verse 18 of the same chapter. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Part of the letter then is Peter's exhortation to the believers to stand against, or at least to ignore these false teachers and pursue holiness. One of the reasons for doing so is because the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return is coming. And on that day, the world will be destroyed, the works exposed, and the ungodly judged. That's coming. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. 
Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Or again in verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. In their midst, and one of the aspects of their heresy is to allow the people a certain kind of quote-unquote freedom, which is actually slavery to the lusts of the flesh. Peter is exhorting them, commanding them to pursue godliness, and one of the reasons to do so is because of the coming day of the Lord. Throughout the New Testament, the second coming of Christ is a profound motivation for turning aside from wickedness and making every effort to live an upright and virtuous lives. So one of the errors of the false teachers, as we'll see, is that they doubted that the Lord would actually come again in some sort of cataclysmic day of judgment. Again, look at chapter 3, verse 4. They will say... Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The false teachers are saying, look, nothing is going to change. People are going to live, they're going to die. All of this business of some massive cataclysmic return, day of the Lord in judgment. Look, have you had that yet? No, ever since the beginning of time, people have been born and then they die. We don't know if they believed that Christ had already returned. We see that in some other epistles in the New Testament, that it was some sort of secret return of Christ or a spiritual return. Or maybe here the false teachers are saying, yes, Jesus will come back, but it will be a spiritual kind of return, not this visible bodily judgment kind of return. Whatever the nature of the false teaching, they certainly did not believe in the day of the Lord as Peter and the rest of the apostles taught them. These teachers were saying, look, the world is going to keep going the way that it is. This is how things have worked since the beginning. Why are you so foolish? You can hear how this might even resonate our day. You people, giving your money, wasting your time, Thinking that, oh no, judgment is coming. Look, people born, people die. The world as we know it doesn't end. It just keeps on going like it always has. No day of the Lord, no judgment, no reward. That's the error that Peter is countering. And in Peter's mind, if there is no coming day of the Lord that significantly changes our moral calculus. I just said before, very homely illustration, but if you think about a a very 'er ne'er-do-well babysitter, none of the babysitters you have, who doesn't care to watch the children or feed them well or get them cleaned up or put them to bed because they figure mom and dad are never coming home. What's the rush? If you thought that no one was coming to check up on your work and that what you did in the present had no consequences for the future, 
Well, then live and let live. What would happen if there were no courts, no police, no prisons, no consequences for bad behavior? No, you cannot rely on the better angels of our nature to somehow just do the right thing. You need to have the threat of consequences and the real world experience of consequences. But these false teachers were the freedom people. Look again at verse 19. They promise them freedom. We can understand this. False teachers who say, look, here's a better way to live. You can have this Christ. They weren't denying Jesus. At least they didn't think they were. They weren't denying religion. They were saying, have a religion without so many rules. Maybe they said to Peter's audience, you can be spiritual without being religious. You can have a relationship with God without all of these legalistic rules, especially about sex. Why are you people so hung up about sex? Maybe they felt, as many of the Greeks and Romans did, that this whole life after death judgment thing was, it was an effort to control people, just to get them afraid, be fearful. Just something parents tell their children, you, you don't know, Jesus is coming back. God in heaven is angry. Just an effort to get people to fall into line. Just the use of religion to reinforce some middle-class ethic. So they argued that Peter and the apostles and their message of the day of the Lord was nonsense. There's no judgment. There's nothing to fear. There's no consequences for sin. Look, you may mess up your life. We still hear that today. Well, you don't want to do that. You don't want to be an addict. You don't want to drop out of school. You don't want to do these bad. Because look what's going to happen to your life. You're going to be unhappy. But as soon as somebody says, and what about a judgment to come? Whoa, whoa, whoa. What are we fire and brimstone people here? Perhaps the most countercultural line in the creed today is when we confess that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, we have a Jesus, all right. Uh, maybe he's even God. Maybe he died. Maybe he rose again. But then we confess, from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So what Peter needs to do is to reinforce the truthfulness of the coming of Christ. Now you may be saying, that's interesting. That gives us a picture for the whole book. What does this have to do with verses 16, 17, and 18? Because that doesn't even look like it's really about the second coming. It's about Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, I hope you'll see that this experience on the Mount has everything to do with the coming day of the Lord, which then has everything to do with our motivation to live a godly life. Look at what he says in chapter 1, verse 16. We do not follow cleverly devised myths. We'll come back to that in a moment. When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... 
So that's what he's reminded them. We, we didn't make this up about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word coming is a Greek word. Maybe some of you have heard of it, parousia. It's almost a technical term for the second coming. It's the same word used in chapter 3, verse 4, chapter 3, verse 12, translated as a coming. Here, Jesus is described as coming with great power. Peter is going to focus on this one doctrinal point because this is what the scoffers were denying. Depending on what the world needs to hear often shapes not what we believe, but what we need to accentuate. And so Peter could have talked about the atonement or election or the nature of sin or the resurrection or the power of the spirit. But here he talks about the second coming because that was the point at which the faith was under attack. And so he wants to make the case that they should not be libertines when it comes to their moral behavior. They should pursue godliness because there is this day of power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now he's going to prove the point. And to do so, he marshals two pieces of evidence, eyewitness testimony and authoritative sources. In two weeks, Lord willing, we'll come to the second of those. That's verses 19 through 21, the authoritative sources, the documents. Tonight, we have the eyewitness testimony. And if you think about it, even in a courtroom today, 2,000 years later, with all of our technology, what is a lawyer going to bring to make his or her case? Basically, they're going to bring documents. We submit before the jury or before the judge. This evidence, these written manifestations, or they're going to call on eyewitness testimony. And so what Peter is going to marshal here as the first bit of evidence in verses 16 through 18 is what he saw. Verse 16, we did not, so before he is going to explain what he does teach and what he did see, he wants to make clear what he did not teach. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. The word mythos is always used negatively in the New Testament. In the 19th and 20th centuries, some liberal scholars tried to use the category of myth to describe the Bible as something whose facts may not be accurate, but whose larger, deeper truth is true. So they said, no, a myth can be true. It's just, it's not whether or not the historical claim can be justified. That, that's not important. What, the larger story is still there. So Jonah may not have been a historical person. He may not have been actually in the belly of a great fish, but what we see is that God can rescue us. Or Jesus may not have walked on water. That's not important. What's true is that he will do anything to come out and help us. The resurrection may not have been a literal bodily resurrection, a historical event, but it proves that God can bring victory from defeat, that there's always hope. Years ago, I was having this correspondence with a pastor in my previous denomination. We were going back and forth, and it was around Christmas time, and he was explaining why he didn't really believe in the virgin birth. I tried to challenge him and say, I, I bet when you tell your congregation and you read from the familiar Christmas stories 
and you talk about the virgin birth, they think that you think that you believe it. He said, well, that may be. I don't want to upset them. But I talked to him. He clearly did not. He thought that Mary was simply a, a younger woman and that she had conceived in some other way. And he said, but what's really important is the testimony that with God, nothing is impossible. Of course, then the point is, well, if really that's the point that nothing is impossible, then maybe a virgin birth is not impossible. But we were going back and forth. It was a classic 20th century, late 19th century, liberal understanding of the supernatural. It's not so important whether or not the virgin birth happened. It may be just a borrowed from some pagan mythology. What's really important is this lesson that God can do anything. But that's not at all how the Bible presents itself. Myth in the Bible is the opposite of truth. 2 Timothy 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Truth, myths, different categories. Peter wants everyone to know that the Jesus story is in the category of historical, verifiable facts. That, that these are not mere impressions or inner experiences or invented stories to make a larger point. No, the Greeks had lots of myths. And the point of their stories wasn't so much whether Hercules actually was the illegitimate son of Zeus with godlike powers. No, it was a myth. The historicity was not the point. But with Christianity, it's entirely different. This cannot be stated too strongly. Christianity, from the very beginning, tied itself to history. That's why Luke wanted his readers to know. He researched the events he wrote about. John wanted his audience to believe the miracles really happened. All four Gospels want us to recognize the tomb was really empty and there were eyewitnesses to tell us about it. J. Gresham Machen said... If this is so, if the Christian religion is founded upon historical facts, then there is something in the Christian message which can never possibly change. There is one good thing about facts. They stay put. Now, none of this by itself proves that the Bible is true. Someone could say, well, the Bible thought that it was true, thought that it was presenting history, but it wasn't. You could make that argument. But it does demonstrate you cannot suggest that the apostles thought they were making up stories about Jesus or that they were liberally borrowing from pagan myths. No, from start to finish, we see the apostles understood their message of the cross to be in a different category. They believed that what they were declaring had actually happened in time and space in verifiable history. Well, maybe the apostles didn't remember something correctly. Now, they would remember whether a dead man came back to life or not. You would remember if you were on a mountain and you saw your rabbi transfigured into dazzling white. And what are the odds that three writers, four if you count Peter, all remembered incorrectly in the same way? And actually, when people point out some of the apparent discrepancies in various accounts in the Gospels, those can be explained. 
And actually, their presence should give us some confidence. Why? Well, because it means that there wasn't some secret meeting where the apostles got together and said, no, make sure, okay, are we all on the same page? You say exactly the same thing. No, they were telling their own eyewitness account as inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they have differences in emphasis and differences in the angle from which they saw the event. If you want to come to the Gospels with a hermeneutic of suspicion, looking for reasons to doubt everything, then you can convince yourself that nothing is true. But if you come to the Bible like you would other historical texts and you look for corroborating evidence, you look for eyewitness testimony, then you must take the Bible on its own terms. Because Peter says here, this is not a story that we made up to make people feel good. I am telling you what I saw with my own eyes. I was an eyewitness and an ear witness. I'm not trying to scare you. We're not trying to control you. I'm telling you what happened on the mountain. If we could have had a camera there. Of course, he didn't have cameras. Could have taken out Peter's phone. You would have seen what I saw. You would have heard God speak audibly. This is not an experience where I felt as if God was speaking to me. Or I had a dream even. Or a deep impression in my soul that God had a message for me. No, Peter says, with my two eyes and my two ears, I was on the mountain. Make no mistake, this is not a fable, this is a fact. Now, why is Peter belaboring this point about the transfiguration when he's trying to convince them of the second coming? Here's the key to his argument. Peter understood that what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration was not just a one-off theophany, that means a God appearing, a revealing of Christ's glory, but it was a forward-looking vision of the glory that would be revealed for all time at his second coming. In other words, here's Peter's argument. The false teachers are saying that this coming of power is, is, it's already happened mysteriously or it is coming in secret or it's not coming at all and therefore you can go about living your lives in whatever way you want. Peter says, no, I will tell you, I know that the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus is true because I already saw it. Here's the, re- the accounting of it in Mark's gospel from Mark chapter 9 to remind you. And I go to Mark because most scholars think that Mark got his information from his close relationship with Peter. Mark 9, verse 2, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified and a cloud overshadowed them 
And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. That's the account of the transfiguration. Now, have you noticed before, in all three gospel accounts, they are immediately preceded by a statement about the coming kingdom. So Mark 9, 1, I just read verses 2 through 8. Mark 9, 1 says this, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come power. Same language. You will see, and he's speaking of the Mount of Transfiguration. Some of you, before you die, you will see the coming of such great power, it will make you tremble. This is the kingdom come with power right here on the mountain. So Peter says, how can you doubt that there is a coming day of the Lord. I saw the day of the Lord, and this Jesus is not to be trifled with. The Bible has a lot to say about God. The Bible has a lot to say about Jesus. And one of the the most difficult things in our day is not to end up with a cartoon version, a one-dimensional view of Jesus. Neither just the Jesus who's just, he's just flipping over tables all the time. Or the Jesus who is just one big, you know, hugging machine. I just love you so much. The Jesus of the New Testament has, has angles and edges. And he's more loving than you can imagine. He's gentle and lowly of heart. And he is in unveiled glory. Absolutely terrifying. Peter saw the unveiling. He saw Jesus transfigured. He saw what Jesus looked like in his full divine regalia. When you have a graduation ceremony and you have the professors, especially if it's some education, some higher level education, and they all wear their funny looking outfits. I have one now and you get a funny looking hat and the whole thing and you you think well I spend a lot of money to get this degree and to buy this funny looking outfit and whenever I get a chance I'm going to wear it my academic regalia to say something about your accomplishments your identity or think about when you're at a wedding especially if you're in a big place like this or a traditional looking sanctuary you've got this big long aisle and the pastor standing there with the groom and There's some majestic piece of music going and the doors back there are shut and suddenly they fling open and it's a, oh, it's just a blaze of glory as the bride is standing there in gleaming white ready to come down and everybody stands to attention and the mom looks and everybody looks and the groom is just a puddle of emotions. There she is. Unveiled, revealed in all of her wedding regalia. Well, friends, weddings, graduations, you name it. We have not seen anything like what Peter saw on the mountain. He realized, oh, this is more than a carpenter. 
This is not in some uh, super tolerant, open-minded guru who never looks with judgment upon anyone. When he saw Jesus sparkle white, dazzle in majesty with the glory cloud that filled the temple surrounding them, he knew this was a man not to be trifled with. And so his argument against the false teachers, to the Christians who are going wobbly with their pursuit of holiness, and maybe that's some of you, we certainly live in times where sexual sin in particular is seen as absolutely normal. You know what the problem is? The problem is you people who are so caught up about sexual sin, you still have a category for sexual sin. Relax, the world says. It's not a big deal. In fact, it's this whole thing about saving yourself from marriage and all the rest and man and a woman, and is, is, is it even possible? Peter says in that sort of ethos, listen, listen, God is still God and his glorious son is still the glorious son and he is coming back. Now, praise God, there is forgiveness of sin. This isn't about you got to be good enough so when Jesus comes back, he's going to look at your life and check off everything and say, no, no, tis, 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 you had sexual sin, you can't belong to me. It's, it's, a, it's about an, an attitude of dependence and trust it's about an attitude that says, this God is the only hope that I have, and he is not a God that I mess around with. Peter says, I was there. I heard the voice, the majestic glory say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We heard the voice born from heaven. We were with him on the mountain. We've seen it. We've heard it. And so Peter says, I'm telling you, you need to get serious about your sin. You need to get serious about your pursuit of holiness because there is coming a day, and we do not know when, when this beloved son will return. And, and he will not show himself to be just a precious moment, Jesus. But we will tremble. Our faith is not built from pure logical deduction. The Spirit of God must open our eyes, reveal Christ to us. But do not discount the importance of evidence. Brothers and sisters, we don't follow made-up stories. Wasn't somebody sometime just said, I, I need some reason to hope and just believe that there's something better up in the clouds and so they started making up stories and said, what, what looks good? Let's get a virgin birth. Let's get a divine son. Nowhere in the Bible is the truth of Christianity treated in that way. The apostles consider it from start to finish verifiable historical fact that they saw. Remember, brothers and sisters, the gospel we believe happened in history, whether anyone believes it or not, does not change the fact that it happened. As Machen said, the good thing about facts is they stay put. This wasn't one way people devised to come to God. It wasn't just one answer to man's questions. It really happened. A man born in Bethlehem. Thousands of people saw him and knew him. He did miracles, witnessed by multitudes. He died. He rose again. He appeared to more than 500 witnesses. All 
three disciples were eyewitnesses of his majesty on the mountain. We do not follow fables. So count on it. These are eternal truths. Finish with a story from John Newton. You know the hymn writer and one time worked on slave ships and became a beloved pastor. He tells the story of visiting a young woman who died too soon from, quote, a lingering consumption. He says the woman was wise, but she was plain. She could read her Bible, he recalled, but not much else. Newton supposes that this woman never traveled more than 12 miles from her home. About 12 miles from this location. That's not very far. A few days before her death, Newton prayed with her and, quote, thanked the Lord that he gave her now to see that she had not followed cunningly devised fables. That's an allusion here to verse 16. At this last remark, the woman repeated Newton's word and said, as she was dying, no, not cunningly devised fables. These are realities indeed. And then she fixed her eyes steadfastly upon her pastor and she reminded him of his weighty vocation. She said, sir, you are highly favored in being called to preach the gospel. I have often heard you with pleasure, but give me leave to tell you that I now see all you have said or can say is comparatively but little. Nor till you come into my situation and have death and eternity in full view will it be possible for you to conceive the vast weight and importance of the truths you declare. Oh, she said, sir, it is a serious thing to die. No words can express what is needful to support the soul in the solemnity of a dying hour. You and I may not know the weight of what we sing, of what we share, of what I preach, of the stories you tell in your Sunday school class or around the dinner table or in your school. We don't often think about the weight of all the words we sing and preach and teach and pray until we come to the end of our days. The mission of the church loses its way when it does not keep this in its central focus, how to help people die well. And at that moment, when we come to die, we will be very glad to have the facts of history on our side. Brothers and sisters, these things happened. Eyewitnesses recorded them. We ought to believe them. Jesus rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from there he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. We do not follow cleverly devised myths. But we await eagerly with fear and trembling and gladness for the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, orient our lives or perhaps reorient our lives to the things that really matter, to these eternal truths, these realities indeed, that we would be firmly fixed upon them, we would be firmly assured and convinced of them, 
And so we would seek you and trust you and wait for you. In Jesus we pray, amen.